Hello and welcome to LawPod. I am Dr. Lauren Dempster. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast and director of LawPod. I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague, Professor Anne-Marie McAlinden, Dr. Marie Keenan from University College Dublin and Dr. James Gallen from Dublin City University. Anne-Marie, Marie and James are here to discuss their project, Transforming Justice, an All-Island Examination of Justice Responses to Historical Institutional Abuse. Welcome all of you to LawPod. To get us started, could you tell us a bit about the background to the project and perhaps what new aspects or added value it brings to research in this space? Right, so Lauren, the project's entitled Transforming Justice Responses to Non-Recent Institutional Abuses Across the Island of Ireland. And the project was very much informed by our different disciplinary backgrounds. So myself, for example, in law and criminology, Marie in restorative justice, sociology and, and social policy and James writing from the perspective of transitional justice and human rights. So each of our sort of diverse backgrounds and experience in research and also our outreach work with survivor groups and and policy groups really highlighted the need to do something more innovative in this space and the fact that justice responses, particularly the front and centre justice responses like inquiries or commissions of investigation were not working. And in terms of outcomes, victims, survivors were often left wanting in terms of justice. So there was a need to do something better in this space. And when we looked at the literature, a lot of the work had been done internationally in terms of what happened, for example, in Canada or Australia. But there was a lack of an empirical focus in particular on Ireland. So we knew there was a gap in the literature to do a detailed and dedicated project on Ireland and what were the justice responses to Ireland. In terms of what's sort of innovative about the project, I think a number of things. One is, is that discrete focus on Ireland in an empirical context as the primary case study. Another key focus, I suppose, is the fact that it's looking holistically at justice responses to non-recent institutional abuses. So not just inquiries or commissions of investigation, but apologies, redress schemes, prosecutions and civil suits. And also, I would say that the empirical work is a new and value-added dimension. There's a scarcity of empirical work in this area particularly with victims and survivors, but also, crucially, with elite-level actors like church and state. And we got access to those, which was very pleasing for this project. So the project, say, is focused on Ireland, situated internationally, and it's also supported by an international advisory group, which are basically key academics, scholars, practitioners, judges, lawyers uh, in this space. So Australia, Canada, Belgium, for instance. Just to add, as Anne-Marie said, we have been in our various professional lives, been working in policy or clinical work and advocacy. And certainly I've been working with victim survivors for many years before coming to the project. We've done in our various spheres some research with victim survivors and indeed perpetrators and other actors. And all of that has built towards where we are today with this project. We're conscious uh, of approaching the project from an all-island perspective, and we think that kind of adds value in a number of dimensions. One is to to look at the initiatives that have been taking place in both jurisdictions, so inquiries, apologies, uh, and so on. But the other, I think, is to try and be more holistic and consider what's shared across the island in terms of dealing with non-recent abuses thematically. So some of the same institutions operate in both jurisdictions. Some of the victim survivors we've engaged with and have been publicly active have had experiences in both jurisdictions. There's a significant research gap in the um, cross-border or transnational uh, dimension of non-recent abuses as well. So we've been looking to, to explore that 
um, as well. Thanks, everyone. It's useful to hear where this project come from and also to see the different disciplines coming together. Anne-Marie, could you tell us, I mean, this project, as you say, is about non-recent or historical institutional abuse. So what is meant by that? Well, I think it might be useful, Lauren, to maybe unpack the three elements of that definition. So what we mean by institutional, what we mean by historical or non-recent, what we mean by abuses. So in terms of institutional, we really use this term in a number of sense. One is in terms of what the literature calls total institutions. So closed institutions with fixed rules and practices, for example, contexts like residential childcare, magnum laundries. Our primary focus is on institutions run by religious orders by or on behalf of the state. But we also use the term institutional in a much broader sense outside the physical scope of a building. So, for instance, an organisation that's defined by shared values and principles, whether that be education or military or medical. So it's quite, quite broadly defined. And when we do focus primarily on the religious sort of context run by church and state, it's, it's important to note we are trying to broaden the findings and their applicability to other contexts. So the range of abuses from what I've just said and the types of institution are we're looking at. So not just sexual abuse, which some of the inquiries or commissions of investigation internationally have been confined to, but also physical abuse, emotional and psychological abuse and neglect. But beyond that sort of abuses that adult women suffered, things like human rights abuses, such as slave labour, coerced adoption, institutional racism, denial of educational opportunities. So there's very much the denial of human rights as well within that. And in terms of why we use the term now non-recent as opposed to historical, we use the term non-recent. There are a number of core reasons for this. One is to denote the fact that for many victims and survivors, the impact of abuses is not confined to the distant past. It's very much, for many people, it's ongoing. It can be intergenerational, you know, things like difficulty forming relationships, lifelong traumas. So it's important to emphasise that. And also the fact that we don't want to create the perception that the onus on society or governments or institutions to deal with this is divorced from contemporary law and policy. It's very much part of sort of public discourse at the minute. We began by using the term historical, and indeed that's consistent with transitional justice discourses where we talk about historical wrongdoing. It's also consistent with the language of many of the inquiries or commissions of investigation. But academic discourse is beginning to use the term now non-recent, both in, in our own fields, but also in relation to broader legal and medical criminal justice settings, which is more in keeping with contemporary thinking. Thanks for that, Anne-Marie. Marie or James, do you want to add anything? As Anne-Marie said in the beginning, we have the benefit of an advisory board, um, an international advisory board of scholars and practitioners and lawyers and various others. And we have been asked to consider whether we should use non-recent or historical at all. Speaking into a, a school of thought that says, abuse is abuse is abuse, whether it was then or now. We have continued to use the term non-recent in light of, of all of that Anne-Marie has said, but it is something that we're thinking about, whether any of these terms apply or whether abuse is abuse is abuse should be the sole way of describing this. I think one of the goals of the project is to address the complexity of considering questions that occurred years or decades ago, and, and that brings with it the need to address the legal and moral distinctions that come over over decades. So the abuse is abuse is abuse position works very well when we consider things that were historically criminalized, such as sexual violence and violence against children. But we run into to more complexity when we consider 
things that are being addressed now in terms of historical abuse, but at the time that they occurred, were either legally permitted or indeed were legally mandated. So thinking of women placed in institutional confinement as a result of a court order. So the legal system was complicit with uh, those non-recent harms. We're also trying to uh, address the the tragedy and and the additional complexity that comes with trying to use legal standards to reach findings for non-recent events where questions of evidence, testimony and memory are going to be perhaps at their most challenging. Thank you. James, I wanted to ask you about the methods of the project. Anne-Marie already mentioned the importance of the empirical dimension. Could you say a bit more about the methods that you've used? Absolutely. So the project has a number of uh, methods, both desk-based and and then empirical, as you mentioned. We've completed a 300-plus page review of the literature across a number of disciplines. We've gathered a documentary analysis, pulling a range of apologies on non-recent abuse internationally, similarly with inquiries and investigative models and their findings, and also gathering for ourselves historical information about the nature and extent of the institutions on the island of, of Ireland. And we've supplemented that with a, a media analysis of papers on the island of Ireland newspapers and their coverage of non-recent abuse in the last 30 years or so in both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And in addition to those sort of desk-based forms of research, we've uh, engaged in um, empirical research, primarily through interviews. We obtained ethical approval in each of our institutions. Uh, We piloted interviews with uh, five to six key stakeholders. Um, And we've conducted interviews then with a range of actors beginning uh, in January this year uh, and with one or two stragglers left uh, finishing up in, in October. That process has spoken to victim survivors, victim advocates, lawyers, journalists, academics, members and representatives and leaders of church and religious organizations representatives and leaders of states, criminal justice sector, policing, the civil service. We've been really delighted with the level of engagement we've received across that project. And we think that's going to add real distinct value to the space. Great. Thank you, James. Does anyone else want to speak to this particular question? Um, Yes, I'll come in and say that one of the things that was very interesting as we proceeded with our interviews and as we reflected on interviews and now as we're analysing the interviews, is the idea of restorative justice that had been happening in some spheres over the past period of time. And we were hearing bits and pieces about innovative practice, if you like. And so to add to our methodology, we decided that we would now do a survey of restorative justice practices across the island in all religious orders, dioceses and societies. And we have prepared a survey and we've gotten ethical approval from our three institutions again for this. And we're about to run the survey now to try to capture the extent of the practices and what's been happening restoratively. And we want to capture this and we want to also learn from it. Thanks, Marie. Anne-Marie, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, I'll maybe just say an additional word about the media analysis, Lauren. So just in terms of the richness of the material, in addition to the interdisciplinary literature review, which is nearly 400 pages, the media analysis itself is about 170 pages. So we have huge amounts of data and and just in analysing it, we all agree it's very rich. So, you know, it's not just the 70 empirical interviews, but the media analysis has been very useful in terms of not just context, but also helping us inform the analysis. And we're, we're doing at the minute 
with our research assistant coding and in vivo on the themes from that in terms of not just background, as I say, but also how that feeds into some of the key findings. Thank you. I mean, it's a really comprehensive methodology and I'm sure you'll have really rich data, but obviously this is difficult and sensitive subject matter. So I wonder, Marie, could you speak to perhaps some of the challenges of working in this area? We have had phenomenal buy-in from victim survivors, from elite actors, from the religious orders and the church, and from political actors and uh, lawyers and so on. But the first big challenge, I suppose we would say, is listening with empathy to the voices of victim survivors. Um, whilst it has been a phenomenal honour and privilege to see it, for us, it's just a small feature of the impact on us, but it has been really, really harrowing listening to what many victim survivors not only experienced in the course of the abuses that they experienced, but even more so what they have endured in trying to get justice, either from church and state. And in, in the marginalization and exclusion that many of them felt and still feel, and how this is impacting on them in the, in the emotional sphere, like despondency and exhaustion and so on. So that's been really interesting. I, I feel sometimes the entire victim survivor population that we interviewed are sitting here with me in my kitchen as I analyze the data. And I will say many a time, both during interviews, but since then, I have wept as I've listened to the stories that have been recounted. So that's one. I think the second is that we've had really good buy-in and participation in, and engagement from, we start with the religious orders, let's say. And there too, it's been harrowing listening to some of the human impact on them, as well as their attempts to make things right. And we've challenged them a lot, but that's been important. And the same with the political leaders. And we've wanted to try and maintain a kind of a balance in our approach to understanding the perspectives of all participants. And so walking that line of being really upset and feeling very close to one participant one day, and then hearing another account from a different perspective another day, walking that fine line is a balance and will continue to be a balance and a challenge until the last line of our project and our book and multiple publications is complete. Thank you, Marie, for sharing that. Anne-Marie, did you want to speak to this issue? I don't have much more to add, Lauren, but I just maybe echo Marie's comment about sort of the personal experience of doing these interviews. And I've done other projects interviewing both victim survivors and perpetrators of sexual violence. But I mean, I think every one of us has been struck by the survivor accounts. And as Marie said, it is an absolute privilege to be able to, to hear these accounts and, you know, the openness of survivors and sharing their stories with us is just a, a deeply moving and really powerful. And I suppose that they just to reflect on the onus on us as researchers and academics to do justice to these accounts and, you know, to listen with empathy. But it, it is harrowing in the middle of an interview and we all have been very moved by it, but we're, we're privileged to have been able to do so. Of course. James, did you want to speak to this question? Yeah, I think one of the things that has emerged in the process of the interviews is the the range of perspectives on on these very difficult and, and sensitive issues and i think what we have reflected upon is there there's 
a very broad discourse then that's played out in public and played out in in the media on these matters and one of the obligations on us as researchers and and one of the goals of the project i think is to try to come up with a series of ideas and way of framing the conversation that transcends the binary account of the space and enables greater relationality and greater buy-in across the spectrum. As a transitional justice thinker and activist, I'd be rooted in a victim-survivor-centered approach, but I'm keen that this project enables buy-in from representatives of allegedly responsible institutions, from state actors, from the legal sector, and so on. And so that creates a real challenge for us, not merely to reinforce scapegoating or reinforce potentially toxic narratives, but to try and transcend those and see what kind of new paradigms we can we can offer to the conversation. That sounds like a really important contribution. I wanted to pick up on, Marie, you had mentioned the buy-in that you'd received to the interviews. Would you like to reflect a bit more on that in terms of pe- perhaps why you think people have been so keen to be involved? Well, people seem to be very happy that we're coming with, as James said, a, a kind of a new way or another way or to transcend the binary that exists at the moment. And people seem to understand that when in our documentation that we have a- sent to them, inviting their participation. And we have asked people, why have you agreed to participate? And many have said, it's trust. That's something about perhaps our reputations, in our individual reputations in this space, but also I think they were persuaded by perhaps the authenticity of the project that we truly want to get beyond and transcend the current binary positionality that seems to bring no joy and no justice and no healing. We have a few high-level findings, if you like, or reflections at the moment. And one is that there is absolutely an appetite for change and for a new way forward. And that is across all cohort of participants. Everybody seems to feel there has to be another way. So that's the first. Second is that we have absolutely been struck. Other um, academics and scholars have pointed to this, which is the inequality of arms. And we have been struck forcibly by this. In the fight for justice, there is beyond doubt an inequality of arms. Victim survivors are taking on, you know, from their own little home and their own little individual lives, trying to take on the might of the state or the church with all their legal representations and resources. And that is just so unfair. That has jumped out in stark terms. We think that there are some misunderstandings, perhaps, that we may well hope to help with between the motivations of the various actors. So one side or one party or one cohort thinks, you know, has a perspective on the motivation of the other. And when we go to the other and ask about their motivations and then other people's motivations, we've come to the conclusion there's a lot of misunderstanding and mistrusts and doubts. So I hope we'll be able to throw some light on that. And the final thing that I'd want to add here is that we have been struck by the question being raised to us, particularly by largely state actors who've asked us to consider the question, if we provide resources for 
historical or non-recent or legacy wrongdoing. That does take from resources for current, for instance, children and child projects. That's been a real challenge uh, to respond to that. I mean, we're clear where we stand on it, but it has been notable how often it's been raised. Marie, thank you very much. It's really interesting to hear some of those findings from you. I wanted to come back then. Marie, you mentioned that folk are keen to hear something different, something innovative. James, could you tell us a bit about what we've seen so far in terms of the responses to historical institutional abuse? I know that one of the things that your research has found is the relationship between different justice mechanisms in the state. So could you perhaps say a bit more about that and any other sort of challenges or or limitations? Absolutely. So, you know, the project has intended to cover a huge range of, of justice responses. So beginning with inquiries and investigative models through what we might deem conventional justice measures, such as the criminal law, civil law, the military system of justice, canon law, law regarding access to information, such as freedom of information and the GDPR, our international human rights framework, but also then the bespoke and perhaps set-piece mechanisms that we associate with transitional justice and, and indeed with dealing with the past more broadly. So mechanisms such as apology, redress and reparation and, and memorialization. It's interesting, there, there's a huge range of things happening um, on the island and, and there has been for almost 30 years uh, at this point in, in, in time. But I would struggle to find you a stakeholder who says, oh, everything's brilliant. When we position Ireland in comparative conversation, we find that the satisfaction rates are quite low in Ireland and the degree of innovation and the degree of sophistication that we might see elsewhere in in Canada or in Australia, it's harder to find here. Uh, Typically, what we find in Ireland is, for instance, each of the redress mechanisms that we've established has either been judicially reviewed or subject to independent assessment or subject to quite significant public outcry, both in terms of its processes and its cost. We have one of the most restrictive civil litigation regimes in the common law world. And that seems to be particularly inequitable when it plays out in this this setting. So there are a few elements, although we are hitting a large number of the options, there's few elements where you would say Ireland is best in class. Um, and I think that really creates problems then when we when we think about the, the experiences of all actors, but obviously especially victim survivors. And Marie has done a significant body of work on apologies previously and was able to bring that to bear in this project. And Marie, did you want to add on, on, on that? Yes, I will, James. So in, in relation to apologies, for example, it, it was part of a large scale project in the school. Lauren herself was also involved. One of the case studies was institutional abuses. And I suppose in terms of apologies, what I would say in relation to strength and weaknesses, they, they definitely have a place to play in this space in terms of acknowledgement. So if, it, if an apology front and centre and clearly acknowledges that the victim was wronged and was in no way to blame, that's a key thing that victim survivors have said that they want. And that has emerged from this project strongly and also the previous one. I think the value added in terms of the apologies and the empirical aspect for this project is we were able to ask victim survivors their reaction to more recent apologies. So the ones that had occurred, for example, in Northern Ireland or more recent ones in the state that predated with the other project. And for example, one of the key things emerging there is that victims very much want consultation in terms of the drafting of the apology. So for the Northern Ireland state apology, for example, there was consultation with victims for the success of religious or other institutional ones, there wasn't. And that really impacted what survivors heard and, and didn't deliver what they wanted to hear. 
So I think there are limitations, we have to say, for apology. You can bring acknowledgement. There are limitations as well in terms of it's it's very much consistent with transitional justice. It's one element of a bigger picture. has to be followed up with tangible redress. There are also practical difficulties. Some people debate whether it's ever possible to have a leader apology in today's society where you have a state or church leader apologising for what their predecessors did decades previously. And there's also the fact that some victims, the wrong and hurt is so great, don't want an apology no matter how well it's constructed and delivered. So it has its place, but it's part of a bigger picture, I think. Thanks, Amory. So from all of these various mechanisms that we've seen, are there any examples of best practice that have come through? So in, in terms of inquiries, the main models in Northern Ireland and the Republic, just briefly, are the inquiry model in the UK and Northern Ireland and the Tribunal of Inquiry and Commission of Investigation model in the Republic. But they have shared weaknesses, for example, in terms of their expense and their length, the delay in the enactment of recommendations, and particularly the extent to which victims are involved in the design and the conduct of them. So victims are involved in the setting up, but not necessarily the function of the inquiry. So in terms of learning from that and what other jurisdictions have done Thinking, for example, of Canada, elements of the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse in England and the Australian Royal Commission. A number of key features there, for example, much more research focused, which had a broader educative function in society and and drawing out the broader learning, which then framed the inquiry's uh, questioning and framework. Also, that the public and private elements weren't divorced from each other in that victims could give evidence to both. And what victims said privately then informed the framework of the statutory inquiry rather than being separate from that wider consultation with victims, getting the terms of reference right, diversity in the composition of the, of the commissions. So, for example, independence, a broad range of expertise. There are lots of different things we can learn from models elsewhere. I don't think inquiries will go away, but certainly they need to be adapted in terms of their current functioning in Northern Ireland and the Republic. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Marie, did you want to speak to best practice? Well, just in terms of restorative justice, we have been hearing about and reading about and engaging with people who have been involved, say, in Canadian restorative redress processes and inquiry processes in Canada and to some extent in Australia. And we have come to the conclusion there are lessons to be learned from a restorative justice lens in the macro sphere. In the more micro sphere, you know, whether it's victims, survivors meeting with leaders of religious orders and so on, I think there are also lessons to be learned from other jurisdictions, but there are also things to be considered conceptually and theoretically for this space. For instance, in restorative justice, one of the challenges is really to consider how can someone who wasn't there, uh, who wasn't even born at the time of the harm or the abuse, try to step in and speak to to, uh, his leadership of this now in a way that's authentic. Now, I think people can, but we need to think a lot more about that. So the other challenge with this is, or consideration of this is, there seems to be some overlap between transitional justice thinking and restorative justice thinking. And there are overlaps and there are separates and there are differences and there are some commonalities and values and principles. So we're trying to figure this. How can we not have a siloed approach? and something that is bigger than all of these and is much more transformative. Thanks, Marie. James, did you want to speak to the transitional justice side of things? Yeah, I guess just to acknowledge that the country has changed quite significantly and the island has changed quite significantly since this context was publicly acknowledged. And there are significant 
consequential social changes that have occurred in that setting. So the children's rights referendum, marriage equality referendum, repealing the Eighth Amendment in Ireland, and the nature and extent of social and religious attitudes changing in the space as well is, is not to be dismissed or downplayed. And so there is a sense in which the adaption of transitional justice to this space is aligning with a broader social change in Ireland and, and on the island. But I guess for me, the question remains whether and how victim survivors are being meaningfully honoured, respected and dignified in, in that process, because it would be a very glib and very regrettable form of social change on the island if we as a people or we as a polity felt this was our period of li- social liberalisation, of secularization, etc., but it was at the expense of or to the neglect of the needs of victim survivor uh, interests, uh, justice and values. And so I think placing those who've suffered most and who were ignored uh, and marginalized for several decades at the heart of every process, I think remains the key sort of contribution and the key challenge of, of, of a transitional justice element to this. And we've seen, speaking to best practice, we've seen some innovation uh, there was a purportedly permanent uh, consultative forum of victim survivors established with the government that uh, was cross-sectional in drawing from survivors across a range of institutional contexts. It was involving people uh, on uh, both jurisdictions, involving people uh, who were uh, outside of both expatriates as well. But the way in which that was treated was very regrettable from the Irish government. It refused to publish that consultative body's first report for a number of years, and many survivors resigned in in protest about how they were treated. So unless there's both a social change and a change in terms of how victim survivors are respected by state and church, I think it remains a very incomplete project. Thanks, James. It's really fascinating to hear what we can learn from different kind of manifestations or conceptualizations of justice. Obviously, this area that you're all working on is one that is always changing. So, James, could you give us a sense of what the current sort of state of play is in in the field in terms of this topic? Absolutely, yes. So I'm I'm very happy to speak to the context in um, the Republic of Ireland, and my colleagues might chime into that. We're addressing a moving target. There's a number of mechanisms that are either finishing up or just beginning their work or at proposal stages um, at present. And so we're very conscious that we have the potential to feed into justice processes that, that, that are unfolding, but also that this is likely to be an area where you know, there's a lifetime's academic scholarship, there's a lifetime of advocacy, and there's a lifetime of um, experiences of, of those who've alleged harm engaging with state and engaging with church um, institutions. So at present, the Department of Education in the Republic of Ireland uh, is, has established a scoping inquiry to look at whether and how it can address allegations of sexual abuse within non-residential schools, day schools. And so that has the potential to be a very large-scale investigation, a very large-scale redress that may follow from that. The government has published this year the Mother and Baby Homes Payment Act, which will provide redress for former residents of mother and baby homes but was met with significant public uh, and victim survivor outcry by excluding those who were resident for less than six months. So that's due to come on board and begin operations early next year. We remain at the very early stages of the excavation and examination of human remains at Tum, uh, and there remain ongoing campaigns by victim survivors and their families in other mother and baby homes for the excavation and examination of remains there in Besborough and Cork and elsewhere. The project expanded 
to consider the women of honour and allegations of recent and non-recent abuses within the Irish Defence Forces. And so advocacy is ongoing there in terms of the establishment of a tribunal of inquiry to address those matters. I could keep going, but the state of play in the field is, is expansion. Perhaps the continued use or, or the intended continued use of some of the mechanisms we've been looking at. And I think sits with what we've come across in our empirical work. There is an appetite for something different, but I don't think broadly in the space people have a sense yet of what that looks like. So hopefully we can contribute to that. Marie? Just that other contexts, James has outlined all of the, many of the ones that we're dealing with currently, but other contexts are coming across our desk now. For instance, medical life, we've been consulted, let's say, by medical practitioners, doctors, consultants who are talking about the abuse and harassment that they are experiencing within their medical practice and medical life as consultants. We've, of course, heard about the universities and higher education and all that's been happening there and more to come, as James said, unfortunately. Thanks, Marie. And Marie, did you have anything to add? Maybe just in relation to Northern Ireland, Laura, I mean, some of the developments are similarly ongoing. So we had the Heart Inquiry in 2017 into abuses in residential care. There was a long delay in the recommendations. So the apology was only issued last year and the other key recommendations in relation to redress and memorialisation are ongoing. More recently, we've had the Truth Recovery Design Panel, and one of the members of whom was our colleague, Professor Phil Scraton. And they recommended an integrated, a number of recommendations, but the key one was an integrated truth investigation model where you had an independent panel feeding into a statutory public inquiry. So the independent panel has been set up earlier this year and it's begun its work. So it'd be very interesting to see what emerges in that space in terms of of doing things differently and, and what victim survivors think of that and what emerges in terms of not only outcomes, but also processes. And I suppose finally... You know, the campaign for mother and baby homes, Magnan Laundry's inquiry was ongoing for years. There's another ongoing campaign for a clerical sex abuse inquiry based on other high profile cases of institutional abuse. So unfortunately, it's an area where there's going to be more and more developments and things happening. Thanks, Amory. It certainly feels like a time when people are more and more speaking out about abuses of power across institutions. And I'm really glad that you're doing this work. Amory, I wanted to ask you then as a final question. In terms of the project, I know you have a project website and and some initial outputs. We'll link all of that on our show notes so listeners can look into that more. But could you tell us what outputs we can expect and what impact do you hope this work will have? Sure. So as you said there, Lord, we have the website and our main output so far has been a 60-page policy report with the help of a research assistant, which compares inquiry models across the island of Ireland and elsewhere and key principles of best practice. But our primary focus for this project and what we'll do with the data is a fully theorised academic monograph, which is also derived in the empirical research. And that's under contract with uh, Oxford University Press as part of their Clarendon Studies and Criminology series. So now the interviews have been complete. We're into the stage now of data analysis and writing. And we hope to have that book finished by maybe spring of next year. Beyond that, we're currently starting to work on a further policy report, which we think will be on comparing different models of justice or restorative justice, transitional, transformative justice, which will help us, we think, with the last part of the book. So we have quite a bit of thinking still to do for that. And in terms of public engagement, we had an invite-only workshop at Queen's in September of this year, and we'll have a final project conference 
which will be the last thing at the, sort of the end of the two year, 24 months, which will be held at UCD. And we hope our international advisory group will, will all come to that. And from that, then we hope to do the other big output will be an edited collection based on some of the themes emerging and also drawing from international best practices, say chapters from members of the international advisory group. Now, Marie and James might want to say more about the public engagement and impact. Yes, I'll just pick up there and say about uh, policy engagement and impact. I mean, we feel ethically obliged, really, to give back and pay back and to feed into policy discussions and uh, change, if you like. And we will do that with multiple stakeholders from church and state and survivor uh, uh, groups and activists and so on. Um, I mentioned some of the high-level findings that we're having. But for instance, in this, we've seen the limitation. We've seen the benefit of law and legal actors in the space. But we've also seen the limitations of law and legal actors in the space. And we'll have something to say about that in due course. And also GDPR. I mean, we have a lot of information now about the impact of GDPR for victim survivors in this space. So we feel obliged, ethically and otherwise, to engage with stakeholders at church and state and at all levels to give some help really in thinking of new ways forward. Thanks, Marie. James, did you have anything to come in on this particular question? Sure. We're also keen with the the range of outputs that Anne-Marie outlined to position Ireland more closely in the comparative conversation as states deal with allegations of non-recent abuse. The monograph and our other outputs can make a significant contribution in a range of fields, socio-legal studies, sociology, social care, restorative justice, transitional and transformative justice, criminology and so on. Um, and can speak both to the situation as it's been presented to us and as we analyse it on the island, but also some of the broader themes that these uh, challenges uh, and issues um, raise. What is the nature, process and limits of justice for dealing with events that are non-recent in nature? Is there an appropriate expectation society, survivors and alleged perpetrators can have about what justice entails, as Marie raised, what's the role of law, and so on, so that we think there will be both policy contributions, but also academic contributions that are both case-specific, but also thematic in nature. Thanks, James. Thank you to James Gallen, Marie Keenan, and Anne-Marie McElinden for joining us today on this episode of LawPod. Thank you for sharing your reflections on this really valuable untimely research a link in the show notes so our listeners can learn more about the project and your future outputs thank you very much everyone